Welcome, everyone, and uh, thank you for joining us on A Reason for Hope. My name is Adrian Van Vactor, and we are broadcasting live from our studio in Tucson, Arizona, from Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. This is a uh, daily, weekday Bible answer program where we take your questions about the, about the scriptures, about uh, uh, how we got our Bible, about uh, the Christian faith, God's existence. Have you ever wondered, you know, is there good reasons for believing that God exists? Uh, are people of faith just people who uh, need a mental crutch and uh, are not reasonable? They check their brains at the door. <laughs> and uh, I know I check my brains at the door all the time, but that's not how I came to faith. <laughs> uh, or, or perhaps you're wondering, you know, some passages that were written so long ago, how can we really apply them to our lives today? Those kinds of questions and much, much more we address here on A Reason for Hope. And for us to get your questions, there are multiple ways for you to not only watch this program live every weekday from 5 to 6 p.m. Uh, Mountain Standard Time, but you can uh, ask questions by engaging with us on our social media platforms where we live stream this program. Uh, for example, Facebook, we live stream this in all our services um, all throughout the week. And our Facebook page is just go to facebook.com slash at CCF Tucson. We also live stream to YouTube, and of course, if you're all ever on some of these social media platforms, we'd love for you to subscribe and like, share, comment, hit the notification bell, all the different things that we do and need to do in order to stay in touch. But uh, we live stream A Reason for Hope on YouTube. Our YouTube handle is A Reason for Hope 546. Our senior pastor, Scott Richards, we'd encourage you to follow him on Twitter. You can also ask questions that we can address here on A Reason for Hope. If you just tweet the question to Pastor Scott, we can address those questions here on the program. And his Twitter handle, handle is at ScottR4H. Now, if you try to avoid social media platforms and just want to watch the program and engage elsewhere, we live stream also right to our website. So you just go to CalvaryChristianFellowship.com and hit the Watch Live tab. And you can not only listen, but you can ask questions. You can engage with others who are watching on our website as well as ask for prayer. All our services are streamed to our Bible app, which is a nifty little tool for uh, having, it's got a built-in digital Bible. You can join chat groups, prayer groups. You can watch all our services, our calendar of events. So many much more things you can do, especially checking out our archives of past uh, series. We here at Calvary Christian Fellowship teach verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, so you can actually go into our archives and s look up sermons that are based on a book of the Bible that you want to go through uh, piece by piece. You can download the app from iTunes and the Google Play Store. We also have a Roku and uh, a channel on all the Amazon Fire products, so you can check us out there. And finally, if you just want to email us a question, you can do so at questionsforhope at gmail.com. So if you want to remain a little more anonymous and would prefer to just kind of send us a question via email, we can address those there. Before we take your questions today, or before we start off with our first uh, topic of the day, I have here in studio with me uh, Pastor Peter Martin. And I'm sure those of you who have listened in before are real familiar with his uh, Bible knowledge and communication skills. It's always a pleasure to have you here, Peter. Thank you. Yeah, no, good to be here. Uh, before we begin, can you take a time, take a moment to uh, pray for our time? Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Thanks. 
Father, we're, we're grateful for you and your uh, incredible love and care for us. Uh, we want to seek you right now in your word. Help us to do that. I pray you would bless the conversation and that all the questions that are being asked, they would be uh, things that would produce thought in us, things that would produce just curiosity and growth in our relationship with you. We love you so much. Help me and Adrian to honor you throughout your word as we go through these various topics. And in your name, amen. Amen. What do we? Uh, what are we going to start with today? All right, cool. So uh, me and Sean had been going through a, a really phenomenal book that I had read earlier this year called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self hmm. by Carl Truman. And what he does is he basically tracks the decline of Western civilization from Judeo-Christian morals to our current modern secularist age. And he does so through the various big philosophers that have existed in the last couple hundred years. What he points out is that every culture has what he references as a social imaginary, and that's the way that we understand the world. And it so permeates a culture that it actually affects even religious groups within that culture, uh, various religious groups within the culture. And what he says is that these social imaginaries are built first by these high philosophers, right? people who uh, are at these top echelons of intellectualism that most people have never heard of and most people don't read. And then their ideas are filtered into the university level, right? So people in that intellectual sphere hear their ideas. And then they start building upon them, distilling them, and producing them in different works, whether they're works of art, literature, things like that. So usually it takes a couple hundred years for these ideas to permeate our, a particular culture. So we started with a guy named Friedrich Nietzsche, the philosopher who announced that God is dead. And the reason why we started with him is I wanted to look at his philosophy as being one of the few philosophies that took into account what would happen to a culture if God died, right? Meaning that he believed that God never existed, but since we're a culture built around a monotheistic Judeo-Christian God, what happens to a culture when that foundation stone is removed? Uh, and he's one of the few atheistic philosophers that actually thought through this. We're going to look at another one today. The other guy we looked at was a guy named Jean-Jacques Rousseau. He's the one that's primarily responsible for the direction of intellectual thought in the West. Uh, he is the guy who influenced Marx and Freud and even Darwin to a certain extent. So we talked a little about him and his philosophy. And he gave rise, his philosophy gave rise to something that we call the French Revolution. So we're going to talk a little bit about the French Revolution today, why it applies to our modern moment, and we're going to talk about a major philosopher who was alive and kicking during the French Revolution, a guy named the Marquis de Sade. Now, the Marquis de Sade was born in 1740, and he died in 1814. He was a part of the French aristocracy. That's why he has the name Marquis, right? Marquis is one of their, uh, I guess you'd call their oligarchy, their upper crust, whatever uh, title you want to use. And he followed the philosophy of Rousseau to its logical conclusion. So Rousseau basically taught we're just a higher animal. Uh, we've evolved to the state that we're in right now, and that societies corrupt us in various ways. And so the way that we get back to what he called the state of nature, which is the innocent state of man when we were living in the woods and we were just kind of hunting and gathering together as a collective tribe, says the way that we get back to that is we have to totally reform society. So we have these virtues and ethics that we all kind of agree upon and understand, and we need to get back to those virtues and ethics through what he called common sense 
and reason. And this is a major philosophy that permeated France during this day and is in the West right now. The idea is that morals and ethics are things that are just obvious to people. You would just naturally know what the right thing is to do. You don't need to be taught not to steal or not to kill. Everybody just inherently knows what this is all about. This is the idea that permeates the modern left, the progressive movement within the West today, that these things are natural. I was even listening to a debate between Brandon Robertson, who is a progressive Christian, a pretty prolific progressive Christian today, and he was making the same argumentation. We don't need the Bible to get our objective ethics from because we have reason and rationality, and by that reason and rationality, we can arrive at a common state of societal well-being, essentially. You even go so far as to say that some of the places in the Bible, when it talks about morals and ethics, got it wrong. That's right. That's Not right. only wrong for us today, but wrong for them at that time. That's right. And, and so you see that Rousseauian thought, like permeating even to this day, that society is what's corrupted the good ethics that are inherent within man. So it's ethical naturalism in a sense. Exactly. Absolutely. And during the French Revolution, because they had this thought process that was driving the French Revolution, they threw out all of the old... I guess you call it all the old gods, all the old crew. They attacked what's called the bourgeoisie. You may hear that word today. Uh, I, my, uh, one of my brothers-in-law, he's, he's much younger than me, and so he talks in the modern vernacular, and he was uh, talking about things that are bougie. I'm like, what the heck is something that's bougie? And it's, it's something that's just high-end, right? But it, it comes from this word, the bourgeoisie, right? Mm -hmm. The the upper crust, the aristocrats. The, we used to say posh. Yeah, that's posh. That's more of a British thing. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, it was posh. You know, <laughs> I think you do have to have an accent when you say that word. Um, Dave but, will be here tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, and I've talked about before one of the modern movies that has actually kind of resembled or re uh, represented the French Revolution is The Dark Knight Rises. And if you remember, if you've seen the movie The Dark Knight Rises, that's the whole premise of the movie. You have uh, Catwoman who's in the bottom echelons of society, and she's criticizing Bruce Wayne, who's a billionaire, and says, you're going to regret how you live so high on the hog and leave, left so few for the rest of us. And mm -hmm. Bane leads this revolution where they're tearing the wealthy out of their apartments and casting them down, putting them in front of kangaroo courts and stealing their, their apartments. And it ends up in a complete annihilation of society. And that's exactly what happened in the French Revolution. They started killing all the French aristocracy thinking that by pure reason alone we could arrive at a moral system that was superior to what the French had built throughout the course of history. So let's not reform it, let's annihilate it and build something better in its place. And while they were having these debates before the revolution really started getting going, they would stand on the parliamentary floor and people would stand on either the left side or the right side. And so when you hear someone say, well, I'm a leftist or I am on the right, I am a conservative right winger, they get that from the French Revolution. That's where that terminology comes from. If you stood on the left side, it signified that you were on the side of the Jacobians. These are the guys who are the libertines. We can just tear everything down and build something else up in our image. And the people on the right were the monarchists. They were like, no, 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 we need to stick to, we need to conserve the values that have built our society. If we need to reform them, we could talk about that, but we need to conserve what we can before we can shift what we need to. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, who's a famous Christian author, he said the, the fundamental principle of conservatism is, uh, he gives a little allegory to explain this. He says, if two people walk up to a fence 
that they is in their way, and one is a conservative and the other is a progressive. The progressive says, this is in my way, so I will tear it down. The conservative responds and said, I will only tear this down if you could explain to me what it's there for. Right? So the conservative is saying, there is wisdom from the past that I may not understand. Maybe it seems stupid to me, but maybe there was a reason why someone erected this fence, and I'm not going to tear it down until I understand what it's keeping out. And when the French annihilated all these systems, it threw their society in a complete revolution complete despair. They started having to kill members of even the Jacobians, even people uh, who were on the side of the progressives. They started to kill one another. N hundreds, thousands of people were put to the guillotines. They were killed and slaughtered in mass numbers. Uh, and uh, Maximilien Robespierre, who became like the leader, he erected a goddess of reason in the center of the French world. And that was, he literally erected an image, a statue, that represented wisdom and people were like worshiping it. And the whole idea is like we're enlightened and we don't need gods, but he built a God, he literally built a God. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a lot of, by the way, I don't have time to get in this, but those of you guys who are keen on your revelation, the book of Revelation, you may hear some common themes in that book represented in the French Revolution. And eventually it didn't work. Robespierre was killed by his own revolution, and Napoleon was then unilaterally foisted up because people wanted order. They're like, this is too chaotic. This is too crazy. We need some semblance of order to reestablish civilization. And they were clamoring for a dictator, and Napoleon took over, and we, I think most people know what happened from there. Now, during this time, there was a guy named the Marquis de Sade. Now, de Sade was a philosopher, and as I said, he took the logic of Rousseau to its conclusion. And what he says, if we are simply a higher animal, then there is no sense in us talking ethics at all. So this is a quote from de Sade. He wrote a couple books. And by the way, I, I've taken this as kind of a point of pride throughout this series that I've actually read these philosophers. So you guys aren't just getting like my spark notes. I am actually reading these people and giving you my genuine thoughts on what they, what they believed. I will not read the Marquis de Sade. <laughs> he's, he's too sick for me. Freud was really tough for me to read. The, de Sade was way worse. Uh, wow. We actually get our word sadism from de Sade. And this is one of his quotes. He says, there is no deed in whatever unusual form you may imagine it, which is really criminal. None which may be called virtuous. All is relative to our manners and the climate that we inhabit. And that's from his book, Philosophy in the Bedroom. What's he saying? This is Rousseau's thought. If all of our ethics are social constructs, that means that they're nothing. And if they're nothing, that means we've invented them. And if we've invented them, then we can destroy them. There's no reason for us to uphold them anymore. Mm. If we really want to go back to the state of nature, then we function like the rest of the animal kingdom. The rest of the animal kingdom doesn't have an ethical structure. There is no moral outcry when a lion enters into a neighboring pride of lions and eats all the cubs, right? There is no virtuous cries of approval when a mother hen sacrifices herself to the fire in order to save her chicklets, right? Virtue and ethics don't exist in the animal kingdom. Every animal simply does what they want to do in order to survive and propagate their genes. There was actually a long period of time, when we get to Darwin, we'll talk more about this, 
where people were propping up the ape kingdom as being like this really, uh, you could see that people were saying, oh, you could see like the, the fundamentals of ethics and these ape communities. And, and then we figured out that all these evolutionists, they were lying. They were preventing people from seeing what was actually happening in say the bonobo community, where rape is totally acceptable in that community and beating your spouse to death, totally acceptable, right? They were leaving out all these terrible atrocities because they wanted so desperately to explain how we got ethics from a purely evolutionary system. Mm -hmm. And Dasad mm -hmm. is saying, that's stupid. You sort can't the, do that. The, the idea of the moral natives. That's or, right. Or the, the uh, noble savage. Noble savage. That, is, that was Rousseau's for. term, the noble savage. That these indigenous people that are free from modern constraints of society, they're the closest to what he called the state of nature, the, the utmost purity within humanity. And he said that children reside in that level because they haven't been indoctrinated yet. So our role as parents is not to raise our kids, it's to actually negate raising our kids so that they won't be influenced by our corrupting natures, right? This is again where modern day progressives believe that you shouldn't foist upon your children any ideology because you're ruining them. They're the pure ones, you're the one that needs correction. Now, why did I say that Dasad is such a sick person? So that was his philosophy. Ethics is dumb. There's no such thing. We're higher animals. So what was his conclusion from that? Well, what do you see in the state of nature? The strong take what they want because they want it, and the weak exist as food for the strong. That was his philosophy. And so because he believed that way, he would live that out. He would buy prostitutes, and he would rape and torture them within his home. And he's written really salacious, disgusting books about his experiences doing these things to these women. So his philosophy, these quotes that I'm reading you, these are not the salacious parts of that of those texts, but his philosophy is interwoven in these really graphic sequences of torture, abuse, and what we would call sadism today. And the French government locked him up because when they found out what he was doing, they were still a Christian nation at that point. They locked him up, they put him in the Bastille, and they threw away the key essentially. But when the Jacobians rose to power, they freed everyone from the Bastille, including Desaad. And Desaad was released and he started doing this again and he started philosophizing. And what really frustrated the French people is that nobody could debate his logic, right? So if a Christian showed up and people, and they would say, you can't get to ethics without God, they would laugh him off, they would ridicule him, but then Desaad would come in and be like, no, I'm on your side. No, I agree with you guys, there's no God. And therefore, I want to do this to this girl. Therefore, I want to do this to this little child. And what's wrong with it? And this is another quote from his book called uh, 120 Days of Sodom. He says, if, if it is the dirty element that gives pleasure to the act of lust, then the dirtier it is, the more pleasurable it is bound to be. Unbounded hedonism was his philosophy. If it feels good, do it. And if the person you're doing it to is too weak to defend themselves, that just is, it sucks for them, right? It's the gazelle in the wilderness. It's the, it's the lion cubs that have been devoured by the superior male. If they can't <clears throat> defend themselves, who are we to defend them on their behalf? That's evil in his mindset. Uh, another quote from him to illustrate this point a little bit further. This is from his book, Philosophy in the Bedroom. There is no possible comparison between what others experience and what we sense. The heaviest dose of agony in others ought assuredly to be as not to us. It's nothing to me if you feel bad about what I'm doing. 
And the faintest quickening of pleasure registered in me does touch me. What's he saying? He's saying, I only experience my own emotions. So if you're telling me that what I'm doing to you is hurting you, who cares? That doesn't touch me. That only touches you. You should be stronger. You should fend me off. You should prevent me from doing what I'm doing to you. Why should I care about the needs of the weak? Why should I care about the needs of the destitute? Why should I support the impoverished? Why should I care about things like rape and murder and molestation of children? What are these things to me when there's no such thing as ethics and it's just might makes right? That's the philosophy that makes the world go around. And again, this dude was so brilliant that nobody could debate him. And so they locked him back in prison. So these enlightened individuals that said they were so far beyond everything, they couldn't debate him. So they just locked him back in jail because that was the only recourse they had. And his, his debauchery went with him. But that was his, again, essential philosophy. And a lot of atheists, again, they have so much trouble debating. So when they're standing in front of a Christian like Dinesh D'Souza or John Lennox and Richard Dawkins is going over how ethics developed or Sam Harris is like, well, you know, ethics just kind of develops about what we feel is right. And, you know, if you take selfishness to its logical conclusion, we're all acting moral ways for our own self-interest. This is the philosophy of women like Ayn Rand, who wrote the book Atlas Shrugged. We'll just get to ethics by self-interest. But then when they have to debate someone like say the columbine shooters or someone like say the uh, recent shooter at the christian school how do you debate someone like that what is your right to tell this person not to do that and what is your right to tell them that the to to support the weak that can't defend themselves why should we provide for the poor why should we take care of them now most people don't go the direction of the sod but it's not because they're trying to be logically consistent. It's actually because they're being logically inconsistent. They're not willing to stare their philosophy dead in the face. They're not willing to take it. They don't have the, the courage, uh, which, by the way, I, I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, uh, courage is only a useful moral when it's attached to a more virtuous one. So courage in an evil man just makes them more evil. Uh, so he did have courage. He just wasn't a virtuous guy. So uh, he, they don't have the courage that Desaad had to take this to its logical conclusion and do what nature would actually have us do if we're simply higher animals. Um, anything you'd like to say about that? Or Well, it makes sense. And when you take a philosophy, what, you know, if God is dead, someone's going to have to take his place. Right. And if it's society, if it's humanity then you're right. Uh, we can develop, I can develop my own personal ethic, but I cannot impose upon you my ethic. Right. You have to have your own, I have to have my own. And the only way you can have any kind of civilization is if we all get together and agree. Yeah. But that's what tribalism is. Yeah. So if one tribe says, no, we believe that it's perfectly ethical to slaughter the other tribe, right. who is weaker, right. just as a matter of fact, right. then there's nothing you can say or do about it. Right. And so the world can now justifiably look at the United States as <clears throat> the police of the world and say, you're wrong. Hmm. We need to do everything we can to undermine you. And any heinous acts of evil that take place in other countries or in parts of the world that are multiple countries, there's nothing anybody can really say that's wrong or evil because that's now you're imposing objective reality. I, I remember <clears throat> I was at University of Connecticut and a student was asking me about the problem of evil. And I had listened to another Christian speaker kind of give this argument, so I went ahead and sort of borrowed it from them 
and used it. But the Christian speaker, I mean, the, 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 the student asked me about the problem of evil and how, after my gospel message, how can I really subscribe to the idea of God with so many things that happen in the world that are evil? And so I just asked him straight out. I said, well, do you believe there's such a thing as evil? Hmm. He goes, yes. And I go, then that must mean that there's such a thing as good. Right. Do you believe that? Yes. <clears throat> okay, so if there's such a thing as evil and such a thing as good, then there must be a moral law in which to differentiate between good and evil. Right. And if there is a moral law, there must be a moral law giver right. that is transcendent of you and I, hmm. whom you are, on the basis of your argument, trying to disprove, not prove. Hmm. So in reality, what is your question? Yeah. Because the assumption of your question is that God does not exist because this thing can't be real if God does not exist. But the very God is necessary in order for you to even make the argument in the first place. And so uh, I find it, I kind of smile whenever I hear people like this guy (laughs) because he's so correct. Right. If there is no God, there is no moral law. There's no objective point of reference in which to d- differentiate between good and evil. Right. There really is no way. Right. It's just my opinion versus your opinion, my culture versus your culture, my tribe versus your tribe. Right. And whoever's tribe has the biggest guns, the biggest muscles, or is willing to be the most brutal, wins. Right. And there's nothing anyone can argue against that without pointing to some objective transcendent source for good and evil. Right. No, absolutely. Uh, even take what he talked, so someone might say to him, well, surely you don't mean that for all the weak and all the destitute. Surely we, we should preserve the lives of some weaker than us, like let's say children. I mean, shouldn't we preserve the life of children? Well, dread not infanticide. The crime is imaginary. We are always mistresses of what we carry in our womb, and we do no more harm in destroying this kind of matter than in evacuating another by medicines when we feel the need. So if your kid's a burden to you, kill them. That was his philosophy. It doesn't matter because all that matters is your Mm. needs. So obviously, again, his ideas have been distilled. They've been uh, watered down. But you could see how his ideas have made it into the modern left. The idea that what is paramount, if you're dealing with the life of the mother or the life of the baby, who is paramount? You are. Why? Because you have consciousness. You're the strong. They're the weak. Mm-hmm. You, they do not have a right. And people will say that. If you give children the right to live in the womb, people have made this argument a lot. If you give children the right to live in the womb, then you are giving them a right that no other person in this country has because it's the right to infringe on the freedom and liberty of someone else. Hmm. Right? That's where you get with progressive ethics. But if I take in a cat mm-hmm. and then I say, you know what? It's been a week. I don't want this cat anymore. I am committing a crime if I drop the cat off in the desert. Yeah. I'm literally in Pima County here in Arizona. It's a crime to take a cat as soon as you bring them into your home. Because yeah. it happened one time. We got astray, and I was like, going to go take it to the Humane Society. Cause, but then someone said, well, they're just going to kill it. And I thought, well, I can't do that. And then I was just reading up, and I happened, I wasn't planning on obviously leaving the cat outside or anything like that. But I was reading through, like, you know, what do I do? Do I turn it into a shelter? And then all of a sudden I started seeing all these laws about don't do this, don't do that. And I yeah. thought, well, people do this all the time. And then I, uh, what's the consequences? It's like a huge crime. You can do jail time just for taking a, a cat that you found outside. Right. As soon as you take control of it and, and you now have it, you are now responsible for that cat. And by just putting it out, 
outside on a street corner somewhere, mm. even with a box saying, please adopt me, uh, you've committed a crime. Mm. But yet, <laughs> yeah. we treat animals better than children. We do. We absolutely do. So two last closing thoughts on this before we move on to what we're talking about. This is why on the show I've, I've mentioned in the past that I am a philosophical conservative. Uh, this is what I mean by that. I am not progressive. I don't believe that you can just have beliefs in the abstract and you can manifest them physically just by thinking them into existence. I think that you need tradition in order to infer, in, in order to instruct and represent the abstract ethics that came before you. You could then deal with something that exists and alter it, but what you can't do is tear down the structure and expect just by pure reason you could build something better. This is why the elite class in our country have been failing us. There are a bunch of people that have no practical idea of how to do things, but they have a lot of abstract knowledge that they got from the university, and they think that that's sufficient to build a system that's worked better than what we've had in the past. I could just root out what's come before me and build something else better, build back better, right? That's, that was one of the bills that they were trying to pass, yeah, right? I could just build back better. I could just make things in mm -hmm. my image and everything's gonna be great. And it hasn't worked out because that's not how human mm -hmm. beings work. Not even in the Bible does it work that way. God gives the abstract theological ethics, but he always engulfs them in practical practice, right? So he tells you, love your neighbor as yourself. And then he gives a list of commandments that are legal about what that looks like mm. practically in society. You can't just infer, love my neighbor as myself. Oh, I totally get that now. No, you need to have acted out representations of what that looks like, and then you need to adhere your behavior to that, that model, that representation, right? So progressive Christianity, one of the reasons why it's gone so far is because it has as its God reason alone. It doesn't have any tradition that underpins it. Because even if they go back to tradition, and that, that would include, by the way, for them, the text of Scripture, their reason supersedes what's come before. So it's just information for them. It's not anything that they have to bend their will to. They never have to question, maybe my reason is wrong, and maybe I need to adhere my reason to something else. Maybe I need to bow to something greater than my own reason. And, and they don't even really... I mean, when they say reason, they're just bending towards what society is crying out for. Right. It's either um, societal or it's just what they think. And when they talk about, you know, equality seems to be an ethic, on what basis? Right. Why is equality important? And you're lying. You right. don't really mean equality. Right. If you were to take Joe Biden's statement that the White House put out, a very lengthy one, hmm. about the, uh, uh, the transgender... Day of Remembrance. Mm. I think it was Friday. Day of Visibility. Uh, or Day of Visibility. That's what yeah. it was. I know there's a Remembrance Day, uh, all kinds of days. This is every day on the calendar is some victimized group. Right? Yeah, exactly. And yeah. And and uh, so and and I'll never forget it because it's on my birthday, March 31st, the, the Day of Visibility, and the statement they put out. I I was as I was listening to another uh, podcaster talk about it and read it, I kept thinking. Wow, if Christians had stood up in the 50s when they took out prayer, they took out Ten Commandments, uh, so on and so forth, when that began in the 50s and 60s, this, 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 this really unconstitutional removal of all religious expression from public institutions, especially education. Yeah. <clears throat> what if you had put Christian in place of the uh, transgender community? Or, you know, he could have written about any day, but what if they had put 
something like that to say, well, I, I identify as a Christian. I My identity is in Christ. My identity is in the fact that God created us, humanity, in his image, and that uh, there is a structure to that. There is a purpose behind uh, who we are, as, and gender is concrete. It's immutable. Uh, he made us male and female. That's my identity. How? And now I'm being marginalized. I'm being oppressed. And if you were to insert that, people would laugh. They would they wouldn't even pay any attention to you. So we're not really talking equality in the real sense. You're really talking, and I think this is, this whole discussion is really a spiritual battle between atheism and uh, autonomy. Autonomous, want, the want to live autonomously hmm. without any accountability to God. This is why so many of those uh, well-known atheists who leapt towards the theory of evolution, because they consistently admitted that the theory of evolution finally justified their moral bents. Uh, I remember, I think it was a quote from Aldous Huxley, mm -hmm. who said that uh, the idea of God interferes with my sexual mores. Right. So how can I justify my lack of belief in God? Well, now I have a theory for origins that completely takes that question mark off the table now. Now I can confidently say I know exactly where I came from, and. Uh, Marquis de Sade is just the logical outworkings of an atheistic philosophy, yeah. and he's taking it to its logical conclusion. Right, and living it out. And living it out, yeah. Uh, the final thing that I'll mention, uh, th this works in our favor for what we call apologetics, right? Giving a reason for the hope that is within you. So in Acts 17, when Paul confronts the Athenian philosophers, he points out that they have a tomb to the unknown God, meaning that their, their theology was incomplete and they knew it was incomplete, but they didn't know how to complete it within their worldview. And so they just erected a tomb to an unknown God. They're like, our system, we can't logically figure out why our system works, but it does, and this unknown God must be the glue that holds it all together. And Paul was able to slip in and be like, hey, the reason why you guys can't figure it out is because your worldview is actually not correct, so mm -hmm. let me tell you about this unknown God. Let yeah. me tell you about the gap in your philosophy that you're missing. And then he starts explaining about the creator of the heavens and the earth. Mm -hmm. Kind of like what you were talking about earlier. Someone, everyone in our culture is bowing down to the tomb of the unknown God. The only people that aren't are the guys like Desaad, sociopaths, who are just doing whatever they want. So you have this tiny fractional percentage of our society that is not bowing down to the tomb of the unknown God. They understand their philosophy. They have worked it out to its logical conclusion, and that's why they're going to commit atrocities. However, the majority of people are bowing down to the tomb of the unknown God, and it's good for Christians to point that out. Uh, and yes, you will be ridiculed by it. Yes, you will be made fun of. But it is important to stick your ground and to point out the logical inconsistencies. So it's usually characterized as, well, you're saying that unless I'm a Christian, I can't be a good person. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that you have a moral conscience. Where does that come from? Kind of like we were talking about before, where if there's moral oughts, if there's good, there must be a lawgiver. But also, I'm saying that the only way that you could be consistent logically and being yeah. vir virtuous and upholding it is by being a Christian. You could be a good person by being a Christian. You could be a terrible person by being a Christian. And you could also be a good person by being an atheist. You could be a terrible person by being an atheist. Mm -hmm. But only the Christian is being logically consistent and being good, and only the atheist is being logically consistent and being neutral when it comes to ethics. Then that could take them in whatever way that their flesh wants to take that. Because the atheist has no basis for moral outrage, right. whereas the Christian does. And that's why hypocrisy in a sense, only applies to the Christian if they are preaching that moral standard. I mean, hypocrisy could be the be the case on either side yeah. because uh, as long as 
if they're being inconsistent, they're being hypocritical. But um, I, I would I, we have plenty of questions here, and, yeah, and at the in. very end, I'd love to see how you would respond to that. The only thing I could think of at the moment is by showing how civilization has tremendously improved by applying a Judeo-Christian foundation or ethic, yeah. not a forced conversion type, but where society agrees that this is a standard we should all live by, even if I don't personally sort of commit my life to Christ, but it, you know, in God we trust, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I would like to see how you would, I mean, are you talking theocracy? <laughs> where, where are we going? Uh, what would that look like? But uh, before we do that, let's get to some of these questions here. Yeah. And Gene um, uh, wanted to know, uh, is it an issue, caps, of sal issue, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> of salvation regarding women teaching over men and mm -hmm. gender roles, or is it a secondary issue? Rick Warren came out saying this is a secondary issue and is not that important. Yeah. No, no, no. A great question. So in Christianity, we have a very narrow window of what we would call essential issues when it comes to salvation. Uh, the, the four that we try to keep it narrow to uh, at this show is who is God, right? What do we believe about about God? Is he uh, polytheistic? Is he you know pantheistic? Is he monist? Is he dualist? Right? What do we believe about God? Number two, what do we believe about the person of Jesus Christ? Was he God in the flesh? Is he uh, God of the Old Testament incarnate uh, for mankind, or was he just a great teacher, or was he like a Buddha, or what? What? what who was Jesus Christ? Number three is how do you get into a relationship with God? This is the, the doctrine of salvation. And number four is what do we think about Scripture, right? Is Scripture simply something that men wrote, or does it have divine inspiration that's underpinning it, right? If we could agree on those four fundamentals, I believe that that's all that it takes to have a saving relationship with God. Now, but saying that something is a secondary issue doesn't take away from its necessity and importance. So, for instance, there are things that you could do that are fatal, right? There are things that you could do that will kill you. But there are a lot of other things that won't kill you, but they will make your life a lot less fun, right? They're going to distort your life, and eventually they might be fatal in some uh, secondary or tertiary way. So, for instance, I could say, well, okay, if you stop breathing, you die. That's a fundamental. That's a primary issue. But then I could say, well, diet is a secondary issue because it's not going to kill you right away. But someone who neglects their diet is going to be a very sorry specimen as time goes on. And eventually, if their diet is bad enough, it will contribute to, uh, it won't directly kill them maybe, but it will contribute to a myriad of health problems that probably will culminate in your death. So uh, is it a secondary issue? Yeah, I could say on that basis, it's a secondary issue, but that doesn't denote any lack of importance. So in the same way, it's like, what are my views of gender roles? I could say, well, you don't need to believe the right things about gender roles in order to have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. True. However, God has given us these secondary issues because they are of great importance in living your life and honoring him, A, and B, living within society that's going to promote well-being and prosperity, right? This is the concept of wisdom, the book of Proverbs. Uh, the book of Proverbs is, is totality, in its totality, it's secondary issues. However, all these secondary issues certainly make a big difference in the kind of life that someone leads, especially in their relationship with God and others. So um, I, I would agree with Rick Warren in saying that it's a secondary issue. I would disagree in saying that because it's a secondary issue, it's not of important value. Uh, I think we 
absolutely should debate this within the church. I think we absolutely should think about it, because if we're wrong about something as fundamental as gender, that has long-term side effects. Mm -hmm. And anyone who says it's a secondary issue would say, okay, fine. Would you be opposed to going back to a patriarchal system in which women don't have any rights? If they say no, it'd be like, well, it's just a secondary issue, right? It has nothing to do with your salvation. So what's wrong with it, right? Obviously, everybody knows it's an important issue. That's why we're talking about it all the time. But it's, it's not important in the same way that believing that Jesus is the Son of God is important. So, so <clears throat> it's not a salvation issue. Mm-hmm. You're not condemning yourself for eternity if you believe that uh, it's okay for women to take leadership, let's say, for example. However, it is important. Right. It's not not important. Right. But what's interesting is that when people say it's not important or it's secondary, they assume that means we should never divide over it, certainly don't argue, just discuss. However, you would agree that we should divide over some of these secondary issues. I don't think you're going to lose your soul, but I cannot be in community with you because this is too important. It's secondary, but it's to salvation, but it's not secondary to the... um, prospering or the flourishing of the local church. Absolutely. I think I think everyone needs to develop this inside their mind. You have a hierarchy of values, right? Everybody does, right? You have, you have primary issues in your mind, you have secondary issues, you have tertiary issues, and on and on they go. What we need to figure out is what are our hierarchy of values? There are things that are so far down that list that if I had disagreement with someone else about them, I wouldn't divide fellowship over them. So for instance, eschatology. Right? I would not divide fellowship over someone if we had differing views on when Jesus is coming back, how he's coming back, is it pre-trib, is it post-trib, is it an amillennial view, is it a preterist view? Right? I'm not going to divide fellowship over that. However, if somebody, say, has differing views about roles within the church, roles of men and women, that's an important enough issue for me to not only debate it with somebody, but to also not recommend your fellowship to anyone around me if you differ on this, as well as to maybe not have a relationship with you because it's such a it's mm. important issue. The difference between men and women is vitally important. Now, if all it is, is, and I've heard people kind of go around it in different ways of saying, well, yes, we have female teachers. However, we're a part of a denomination that has an all-male elder board. And so she's under the covering of that elder board. That's a, a premise that I could say, okay, we could have some amount of fellowship on that. I, I disagree with that, but oh, okay, I could see where you're coming from. All right. Um, but if someone's just saying, no, 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 Paul was a, was a patriarchal person. He's coming from a patriarchal society. He was wrong when he said this. We're to completely go around it and not interpret it in any way that would infringe on any ability within a woman within the confines of the church. That, to me, is something where, again, you're getting into progressive versus conservative ideologies, mm-hmm. where you're saying that I have this concept in my mind, abstract concept that I'm going to call equality, and I could get there by blowing up all the traditional values of male and female dynamics in all societies that have preceded my own and expect it not to have consequences. Mm -hmm. That to me is very, very foolish. It will have consequences. It has had consequences. And anyone who doesn't think that the modern gender madness doesn't emerge from this type of thinking of you could just annihilate all the systems of gender dichotomous uh, roles within society and not have this logical outflow is kidding themselves. It absolutely comes from this philosophy. Hmm. Wow. Well, thanks for the question, uh, Gene. It was a good question. really appreciate you uh, joining us on the program.
Uh, Jari wants to know what is the best way to do things without grumbling or arguing? Hmm. Is it even possible? Philippians 2.14, how can we do this better? Thanks. No, that's a very, very good question. So uh, in the passage that you're referring to, this is not a moratorium on, let's say, acknowledging that something is wrong, right? Um, So in other words, when Jesus went to the cross, it says that he despised the cross, right? He endured the shame. So uh, Jesus didn't look at the cross and say, well, I'm going to the cross. This is awesome, right? No, no, no. There was a despising of what he was going through. There was a enduring of shame that he didn't want to endure. That's why he prays prior to the cross that if it's possible, the cup would pass for him. Uh, Jesus gets very angry at the tomb of Lazarus when he is about to raise him from the dead, and he marvels at the unbelief of the pharisaical class. So, uh, and he gets very upset also in driving out the money money lenders right after Palm Sunday, which is, you know, the week that we're celebrating right now, Palm Sunday, and then we're going into Good Friday. But at any rate, um, when Paul is saying don't grumble, complain, or argue about things, he's not saying that we can't be frustrated about things. He's not saying that we can't be angry about things and call them out for what they are. What he's referring to, he's, he's talking about specifically context within the church, and if you read all of Philippians 2, he's talking about preferring the benefit of another above myself. Now, this is actually a really, really important thing, and uh, C.S. Lewis, I think, gives the best interpretation of this passage in his book, The Screwtape Letters. So in the Screwtape Letters, it's like a fictional uh, discussion between two demons trying to tempt a guy away from God. And in their discussions, there's this one scene, and they're all these, it's a series of letters, right? Um, and one of the letters, the junior demon is like, oh man, it's, it's all over. This guy's a Christian. He's living with his mom. She's a Christian. She's uplifting him. They're getting along. Things are going great. I think I've lost. And the, the senior demon says, ha you know, you're, you're such a noob. You don't know what's going on. Let me explain to you how to divide their fellowship and make their relationship miserable. And he said, get them to prefer one another for the sake of love and in happiness and get them to not do it out of genuine sacrifice though so in other words i know that my wife wants or prefers something so i do that for her but i resent her for it so i'm doing it but i'm resenting her for it all the while and he says over time you will realize that cosmic niceness will do more to divide fellowship than upfront malice or rebuke and it's such a wise thing to say and i always bring that up in marital counseling because people in marriages do this all the time right they they're like oh okay my wife wants to watch this movie but i want to watch this movie i'll do this for her but then they do it and they resent the wife they're like ah you made me sit through this stupid thing or uh you you know your wife wants you to quit this job or uh, as a wife you know that your husband would prefer if you dressed a particular way so you do it but you're just saving up this resentment. You're grumbling about it, whether you're doing it outwardly or you're doing it in a purely passive way. You're not actually esteeming the desires of another above yourself. And he's looking at Jesus, and he, said, and he uses Jesus as an example. And he says, Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be held onto, but emptied himself for us. Jesus never grumbled, and he could have. He could have looked around and been like, gosh, you know what? I was in heaven like 30 seconds ago from my counting of time, because he's eternal, and it was so great, I had no suffering, and here I am on this planet 
getting abused, neglected, mistreated, and even my own followers can't even get what I'm saying when I tell them that I need to die. You know, and he could have grumbled. He would have been have, had every right to do it. Why didn't he? Well, he didn't do it. And again, I think your, your question is very sophisticated, Yari. And when, when you ask, how can we do this? Because you're recognizing how hard it is. He did it by genuinely sacrificing what he wanted for the betterment of another. In other words, what was Jesus's reward in mm. doing this? His reward <clears throat> was, number one, in pleasing the Father, and number two, in bettering the other, even if they didn't appreciate what he mm. was doing. Because that, of the joy set before him. That's right. I love that passage. That's right. So if you're going to sacrifice for your partner, I tell this to, to couples all the time, if you're going to sacrifice for your partner, make sure you're doing it, number one, for the praise and approval of God, and number two, because you genuinely want to better the person that you're mm. with. If you're doing it because they're going to notice, appreciate, or reciprocate, get ready for disappointment, grumbling, mm. complaining, and a <laughs> bunch of inner <clears throat> resentment, right? You're never going to be able to joy in it unless you actually see the reward from God seeing and rewarding me in secret, right? Sees in secret, rewards openly. If that's not enough for you, don't do it because you're just going to get upset at the person that you're doing it for. And by getting upset with them, you're going to take it out on them. Hmm. You're going to bring it up in a fight. I guarantee you, you're going to bring it up in a fight. Look at all I do for you. You never appreciate me. You never thank me for... The reason why you're grumbling is because you're not doing it for God. You're doing it for them. Now, again, that doesn't mean in a relationship there shouldn't be reciprocation. It doesn't mean that I shouldn't bring these things up to my partner and saying, hey, look, there's an imbalance in contributions to the relationship. And I want to point this out, right? And you could directly do it, but if you are building up that passive resentment and you're pouring it out on them, either through neglecting of intimacy, right? I'm not going to spend time with you. I'm going to be passive to you and cold towards you because you've just frustrated me or directly of just, you're terrible. You never take care of me. You never help out, right? If you're going to do that, you'd be, you'd be better off not doing it. Mm. Now, that would be the better solution. The best solution is that you reorient your focus towards God and you say, God, teach me to sacrifice like you do. Teach me to see the reward of your father's pleasure, the reward of your father being pleased in your action as being so great that I willingly sacrifice what I want for the betterment of another, whether they appreciate it or not, right? So again, it's not that we don't fight for healthy relationships. It's not that we don't get frustrated at injustices we should, but it's that where are you finding your joy? Are you finding mm -hmm. it ultimately in God or are you finding it in man? And that's gonna make all the difference in the world. That's excellent. Thank you, Jari, for that question. It's really good. Uh, John wants to know, is there anything biblical about Ash Wednesday? Ash Wednesday. That's pretty cool. Mm. Um, so basically, I am not an expert on Catholic doctrine uh, when it comes to Ash Wednesday. I know a little bit about it. I know that you get ashes, you throw it on yourself, and I, I think you just kind of dab it right on your forehead. Yeah. But you're from the Catholic background, so I think you should answer this. <laughs> well, I my, my mom um, is Catholic, but mm -hmm. uh, I wasn't really raised in the tradition. I went to Catholic school for half of second grade. Yeah. That's the extent. And then Beyond that, I, I am a genuine Protestant, like in the real sense of the word. <laughs> uh, I'm not just an evangelical. I'm actually a Protestant. I protest. <laughs> yeah. You actually rebel. Yeah. <laughs> so <clears throat> my understanding is very limited as well. Um, uh, is it? Well, the question, is it biblical? No, but it's also not, it's not unbiblical either. Right. It's just taking 
um, the 40 days before Easter, I think the Council of Nicaea declared it a 40 days of fasting before to celebrate Lent, and yeah. commemorate Easter. 40 days is obviously paralleling uh, Jesus's uh, time of fasting for 40 days in the wilderness prior to his ministry or at the beginning of his ministry after the baptism that he um, had with John the Baptist to, to basically start his launch his ministry mm. and uh, <clears throat> so and it's not just a Catholic it's a lot of Protestant denominations right. have started to celebrate it but on Ash Wednesday it's usually 40 days prior to Easter I think so this year would be like in February and uh, <clears throat> The idea is that you're commemorating uh, the leading till to through Lent um, what Jesus endures, so all the significant events that took place uh, during the days prior to the crucifixion. We're similar. We're just celebrating that. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> I like that passage. Maybe you'll remind me where it's at. It's in. I think it's in Second Corinthians where Paul talks about communion and how it was being abused. Mm -hmm. He says, when you do this, you proclaim the Lord's death in the past until he comes. Now you proclaim the Lord's death in the past until he comes in the future. So sort of communion is our way of celebrating on an ongoing basis year round, the remembering the death, burial, and resurrection. Mm -hmm. And so... Uh, Lent and all these other traditions are just expanded versions of communion, yeah. uh, but during the Easter season. Yeah, and, you know, this kind of goes back to, I guess, the main theme of this broadcast, conservatism versus progressivism. <laughs> One of the mistakes of the Protestant Reformation is that there were elements within the Reformation that were progressive. There were elements within it saying, like, we can just annihilate all the traditions that the Catholic Church has built up over the last couple centuries because they have legitimately abused their power and gone off the deep end in some of these areas. Uh, we could just totally annihilate all tradition and everything that's come before us and just me and my Bible, I can reconstruct correct Christianity just in my own mind. That is stupid. You cannot do that, right? There is a tradition that has preceded us in the past throughout church history that helps us interpret and understand scripture. Is it always right? No. Tradition is always superseded by scripture. However, again, you got to tell me what the tradition is there for before you try to either reform it or just annihilate it altogether. And I think that it's a very good thing. Christians tried to reconstruct the model of holidays, holy days, that we see in the Old Testament, right? And when you look at the Old Testament holidays that are, that are there, a lot of them are like week-long stuff, you know, or multiple days, like Pentecost. After the Feast of Passover, you had 50 days to commemorate God and to think about him, and then you had another celebration, the Feast of Pentecost, and that's where the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the nation of Israel. So I think it is a good model that Christians don't just have a day where they think about something about God, but they actually have a series of days where they think about God. I think it's a really beautiful thing. I really do pro believe that Protestants and a lot of evangelical denominations have lost a lot of the importance of these celebrations by making them merely symbolic and not something that's traditional that helps us understand scripture. I think we've thrown out a lot of really important uh, traditions that would benefit us. I think it would benefit us to make Easter more of a big thing as opposed to just a day, you know, and I, I really think that it would benefit us to 
look at communion from a more hollowed perspective. Again, it's not that the real presence is within it. We doubt, we disagree with transubstantiation, but many Christians don't even do communion, right? They don't even think of it as important because it's symbolic. So I think we need to balance those two things mm-hmm. and understand them. And I, and I appreciate how the Apostle Paul addressed these kinds of issues because they're there were a lot of traditions. Yeah. I mean, this happened many times throughout church history, right. not just at the Protestant Reformation. Yeah. It happened when Gentiles became Christians. Right. It happened when Jews became Christians. Right. The very first Christians right. had to wrestle with some of these issues because they realized that you cannot attain righteousness through the of your own, through right. circumcision and so on. And they would practice these things, but they had, they had to step back and go, okay, well, why did God prescribe these things if righteousness cannot be attained through the acts of the law? Right. And, and then how do you explain that to a Gentile who, who is like Abraham? He was right. justified before the law. <laughs> right. Or righteousness was credited to him before the giving of the law. Right. Um, and that's the basis by which we are also justified. Right. And I appreciate the way he words this in Romans chapter 14, mm-hmm. where he is describing people celebrating different days for different reasons, including different foods. And I'll just read from the very beginning. Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not dispute over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak only eats vegetables. That means, by weak he means some people just, I'm not sure if I should eat that meat because it was came from that temple. They're just a little unsure. And so the weak doesn't mean stupid or frail. It just right. means unsure, doubtful. But because the issue is doubtful, don't dispute over it. Moving on to verse 5. One person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord, and he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it, and so on and so forth as far as eating and all these other things. So we shouldn't divide over these things like Ash Wednesday. (laughs) Um, Is it biblical? Hey, let's celebrate everything the Lord has done for us and not judge one another when we don't. (laughs) Thank you for tuning in. And uh, we'll be here same place, same time tomorrow. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.